Performance Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. As much as any organization would like to believe, none of us are immune to fraud. We're often told it's not a case of if, but when. So what's most alarming is that 41% of UK financial decision makers are unaware if they've already been a victim of fraud. So I ask you this, if the organization that you own or work for fell victim to fraud, would you know what to do? I'm Rich Williams, the host of the Payments Podcast, and this episode looks at what happens after fraudulent activity has been identified in an organisation. With me today is Ben Hobby from BTVK Advisory, who has extensive experience in accounting and fraud investigations for both private and public sector entities. Hello, Ben. Hello, everybody. Although I'm sure that every organisation hopes to never become a victim, what plans or actions should organisations have in place if they were to spot fraud? Every business is going to have a disaster recovery or business continuity plan uh, to deal with potential, say, fire events, for example, if their factory uh, or offices burn down. Similarly, a business would hope to never use those. So a fraud response plan is going to be absolutely uh, critical for a business to make sure that uh, the responsibilities um, are known for all of the key individuals in the business and that the key decisions are taken quickly uh, you know, by, the, by the right people. Part of that plan, there needs to be a number of uh, key strategic decisions um, that that need to be made. The first of those is to consider the desired outcome. Um, In in any journey, it's always important to know the destination, um, as that will allow you to determine the the route that you should take. And by the desired outcome, I mean that the the company should be considering whether they wish to go down the path of a criminal prosecution, um, a civil action um, against the potential fraudsters, or if it is an employee uh, that is involved, uh, whether they wish to go down the route of um, staff dismissal. A fraud always re- results in some sort of, um, you know, of accounting black hole um, you know, that exists and therefore needs to, uh, you know, to be filled. So part of the, uh, the fraud response plan should always be thinking uh, you know, about the recovery uh, of those funds. And that recovery needs to consider whether um, the company goes against the, uh, you know, the potential perpetrators and also whether there are other third parties uh, that, are, that are involved as well, say professional advisors uh, or contractors um, that may also have, uh, have had a role to play in the fraud itself. Finally, uh, the company may also have a, a, an insurance policy uh, against commercial crime um, and may therefore be able to make recoveries against that particular policy. And will organisations need to have a plan in place to let any authorities know that they've been affected by fraud? And if so, who should they be contacting? Absolutely. Um, There are a significant number of businesses that um, have some sort of external regulator. And with that um, comes a number of of different reporting obligations. And we're not just talking here about businesses that are, say, on the the stock market or or regulated by by the FCA. Uh, We uh, conducted an investigation a few years ago for a housing association, which has their own separate regulator, um, again, with reporting requirements there. So they need to be identified right at the outset so the responsibilities of the company are known as well. It may also be the case that there are legal contracts with certain suppliers as well that also have a clause in there for mandating some sort of disclosure as well. And there may also be reporting of obligations under any kind of commercial crime insurance policy as well. 
with those reporting obligations, though, it increases the risk of uh, the fraud actually then becoming out, coming out into the public domain and being reported on by, uh, by various media organisations. If that's the case, it's absolutely critical uh, for the company to make sure they're trying to uh, keep control of the message uh, that, that is out in the public domain, and there may therefore be a need um, to bring in um, a, a crisis PR uh, supplier uh, to assist with this. We've seen um, recently with, that a large fraud can uh, can certainly bring a company down. Uh, Patisserie Valerie being one of the more recent um, cases that you know that have made the press, and it's important in those circumstances for the business to actually keep trading. Um, by using crisis PR, um, the business can help to keep confidence with third parties that will allow it to continue trading. So you mentioned earlier rather a touchy subject, which is uh, a member of staff actually becoming involved in fraud as well. And we know that internal fraud is just as important to circumvent than external fraud. So let's look at the worst case scenario. And an organisation has spotted that they've fallen victim to a fraud which has come from inside their organisation. Uh, a member of staff siphoning off funds from payroll, for example. What should they do next? Well, we've already discussed the importance of a company having a fraud response plan. So the first thing to do would be to invoke uh, no, that particular plan itself. Um, you've got the plan, you may as well use it. Um, that plan, though, should set out um, some of the, uh, the key decisions that need to be made right at the outset, at the, at the point of discovery, um, that will define the strategy of the investigation uh, no, no itself. So one of the first decisions that need to be made is, well, who is the fraud response team? Um, and the obvious people to be involved with that would be uh, in-house counsel, certainly in the first couple of days to make sure that um, legal privilege uh, is maintained. HR will likely need to be involved to make sure that employee law uh, considerations are, are now taken into account. And if there are any external court applications that need to be made, then uh, external lawyers may also need to be involved. Finally, that fraud response team will need to potentially include certain key directors um, to allow um, decisions uh, no, to be made. It's important, though, to ensure that that team is kept um, as lean as possible and on a need-to-know basis um, so that the investigation is as, is as focused as possible. We've discussed already the fact that the fraud response um, plan should also consider what the objectives uh, you know, of any uh, investigation are. And uh, because every fraud is different, the, the uh, objectives may change ever so slightly from, from case to case. So again, one of the key decisions the, uh, the fraud response team need to do early on is what, is, you know, what are the objectives? Are they seeking recovery? Are they seeking uh, no, no prosecution? But also, uh, there's a need to consider whether there is any other issues with procedures and controls elsewhere in the business that may lead to uh, the fraud continuing and potentially, uh, potentially worsening. It's always important to remember that frauds are invariably worse uh, than, than expected at the point of uh, discovery. They need to be investigated uh, you know, properly as a consequence, but be aware, what you know at the point of discovery is invariably not everything that is relevant to the fraud itself. So should a suspect internally be identified, Ben, what's the best way to manage that process? I think we have to remember that in this instance we're here within the first 24, 48 hours uh, and after discovery. So we're not yet um, in all possession 
uh, of, of all of the facts. Um, therefore, it's important to keep the suspect um, in place and to continue, uh, you know, as, as normal. Um, to engage in anything that may result in the uh, in the employee's dismissal may, at this stage, um, potentially result in a wrongful dismissal claim against the company because we are not in possession uh, no, no, of all of the facts. That said, um, if there has been a potential fraud, we need to make sure that the, all of the relevant evidence uh, is preserved uh, and, and recovered so we can then review and investigate uh, all, all of that information. And potentially, if the case is going to go to trial, for example, if we're seeking a, a civil recovery or even a criminal case, we need to make sure the evidence is preserved so the case isn't compromised um, somewhere down the line. Also bear in mind though that um, the suspect, if they get any inkling that they may actually have been discovered, they may try and uh, cover their tracks by destroying evidence uh, in, no, as well. So there may be an argument to uh, restrict uh, the individual's access to certain buildings, uh, systems or emails uh, as well. In these circumstances, it may be appropriate for the fraud response team to involve um, the head of IT and, and to, to assist with making sure that that information is, you know, is preserved as well. In addition to uh, liaising with, uh, with IT, the fraud response team may also want to consider bringing in an external IT forensic company to make sure that the uh, electronic information is preserved in such a way so that the evidence trail isn't compromised. And how about maintaining a level of confidentiality for the individual involved? Well, that's absolutely critical because, as I've already said, we're still in the first 24, 48 hours of, uh, of the investigation and we do have the, the principle of uh, innocent until proven guilty. Um, th that said, it is critical to maintain uh, the, the, no, absolute secrecy. Um, and part of the means of doing that is to ensure that the fraud response team is as lean as possible in terms of the number of people who, who are part of that. But something else the fraud team may, uh, may, may wish to consider is potentially meeting off-site. Um, closed doors to officers around an organisation uh, will usually start uh, whispers and rumours uh, around the organisation. By meeting off-site it allows the fraud response team to uh, not only discuss the case amongst themselves but also to meet with external advisers um, without necessarily setting hairs running within the company itself. So I'm sure one of the natural reactions for an organisation when they spot a potential fraud is to hit panic mode but what else should they not be doing? You're absolutely right to you know, to emphasise the need to uh, to don't panic, um, much like the uh, well well known character from Dad's Army. Um, I think the first thing to do is, is, is consider the, the, the discovery issue. Most frauds are brought to a company's attention by, by whistleblowers. Um, and it's incredibly important to not take those suspicions uh, lightly. Um, I think there is a tendency to think that that may be a, a disgruntled individual, but um, they have to be um, in, investigated properly because the consequences of not investigating a, a whistleblower's allegations properly and then the whistleblower later being proven to be correct, uh, the ramifications for the company are, I know, are potentially quite serious. With the strategy though as well, there's a number of um, important don'ts there as well. Don't make rash decisions. Um, you know, we all say that in all aspects of our life, there will be uh, decisions there that a company will later um, no, no, come to uh, no, come to regret. But also, don't take unplanned actions. The, the strategy defines defines the route uh, that a company will wish to you know, will wish to go down, and it's important not to go off um, on on tangents that may ultimately um, compromise uh, the investigation. 
if you are going to bring in external advisors, make sure they have the right qualifications and the right skill sets to deal with the particular um, aspects of, of the investigation. Using unqualified advisors may increase the risk of, uh, of the investigation becoming compromised. Um, but also, don't underestimate uh, you know, the wrongdoers uh, the, the, themselves. Um, the wrongdoers may be getting close to being discovered and may therefore um, you know, feel threatened and may therefore take um, you know, no actions um, you know, that, that can cause an issue. Um, but also to prevent uh, you know, their discovery uh, you know, no, no as well. So make sure that you have all of the, uh, the, the information collated, certainly before you even consider uh, interviewing a, a suspect. So with that being the case, when would be an appropriate time to bring a potential suspect in for interview? Certainly not within the first 24, 48 hours, which is what we're you know, considering here. We've already mentioned that um, you know, fraud is going to be invariably worse than, you know, than expected. So the, the actual circumstances and the facts need to be properly investigated and established so that you have what you consider to be the full story before you then sit down with a suspect. If you have that full story, it's easier to uh, ask the right questions um, because you're in possession of hopefully of all of the facts. If you haven't got all of the facts, it's much easier for the suspect to potentially uh, lead you as the investigator down a, a number of, of blind alleys. Um, mentioned already that don't underestimate the you know the wrongdoers themselves. Um, that's why it's important to have uh, you know, have all of the facts um, in you know, together. And by making sure you have all of the uh, all of the facts, it's that's part of the process of making sure that the investigation hits the right standards from a, from a legal point of view, so that you are then not compromised at any point further down the line. Uh, if you're wanting to take legal action, either to uh, recover the funds. Um, or to uh, initiate a criminal prosecution or even to uh, dismiss the employee as well. And again, thinking about confidentiality, how should that be managed during this interview process? The fraud response team need to always keep at the forefront of their mind a a need-to-know attitude. um, In that only the core members of the team need to be aware uh, of what's going on. By doing that, um, the risk of uh, you know of alerting the suspect um, you know is, is minimised. Um, we always have to keep in mind the the risk of tipping off um, you know, the suspect, which you know is, is uh, certainly a crime under under, under UK law. Um, and we always need to make sure we're taking every step to you know, you know, to minimise that. It's always important also for the fraud response team to make to not assume um, there's nobody uh, no no listening in. Hence the need to maintain off-site meetings, um, ideally in hotel conference rooms rather than necessarily in, uh, in coffee bars. So what you've mentioned so far, Ben, gives us a lot of insight into how organisations and, and why organisations shouldn't just sit back and hope to never fall victim to a fraud, but instead to prepare in advance to minimise the damage if they do. Now, as we know, no business is immune from this and no business is immune from being a potential target. So could we close with an example that you're able to share and just talk us through what went wrong for them? Of, of course. Um, the, the car company BMW, um, unfortunately, was the, uh, the recent victim of, uh, of a fraud from a, uh, an employee uh, in finance um, who had been diverting funds for supplier invoices into their own bank account. Um, the total taken over a couple of years was um, best part of, uh, of £6 million. And the fraud was only uncovered um, during a, a routine supplier audit. 
Now, if, if we break the issues down into sort of technology, process and people, uh, I think the first issue on a, on a technology side um, is that uh, BMW weren't using any kind of protective software uh, to ensure that um, any payments into a new account or a change of account uh, no, no, were, no were detected. Or alternatively, payments going into an employee account when they're labelled as being for a supplier. Um, there's no software in place to detect th those kinds of anomalies. From a process point of view, though, um, the payments were being made to uh, to a, it was a legitimate supplier, uh, but a supplier that hadn't been used for you know for approximately eighteen months. Um, so, from a process point of view, consideration would need to have been given to uh, what steps uh, BMW would have taken to make sure that only approved suppliers that were regularly still being used, um, you know, were allowed to be used by the organisation, that so the purchase orders could be issued. Um, to, to know to those companies, but also there's an exercise that that finance can take a, 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 as well by reviewing with each of the relevant cost centre managers the costs that are being recorded uh, in that particular cost centre um, to make sure that uh, they were legitimate. In this particular case, um, the costs were all being recorded as security, um, and given the amounts that we are talking about here. Um, they ought to have been able to have been detected by a, some sort of regular uh, cost centre review. Finally, we need to consider people um, a, a, as well. Uh, the individual who conducted this fraud had a prior conviction, I think it was in the Netherlands, um, for employee fraud. Um, and particularly where you have uh, an employee coming into, into finance, it's obviously critical to make sure that one understands uh, their background. Um, so there's a role to play there uh, for HR in terms of performing uh, all of the relevant background checks to make sure you're, uh, you're not recruiting somebody with uh, something of a checkered past. That's very informative, Ben. Thank you. Uh, we often talk about how to prevent fraud before it takes place, but you've really shown us today how important it is to be prepared for that becoming a, a very real eventuality. So thank you once again for your time today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.